Dario and I made this recording on Friday afternoon before the sad news of the death of DMX. Our thoughts, our prayers are with his family, his friends, and all of his fans. Rest in peace, dog. Welcome to another episode of Middle School Music, where old school meets new school. I'm, I'm your one of your hosts, Farhan Lalji, and with me as always is Dario Devet. Dario, how are you doing this afternoon? Hey, I'm good, man. Uh, it's, again, Friday, which is nice, even though people are ending any of this on Monday. I say this every time, uh, so you're probably pretty bored of hearing that intro. But uh, at least it's blue skies in London, and hopefully we'll get a little bit warmer as we approach the summer. Yeah, and things opening up in the UK, vaccines kind of being rolled out. Um, you know, kind of there's there's the hope and the ambition that um, we'll we'll maybe kind of catch a festival or two over the summer. Do you have do you have any plans for for engaging in any live music or anything over the the summer? Yeah, dude, it's funny because Live Nation has been sending a couple emails over, uh, but I think it's ambitious that we'll have any form of shows. It does seem like the bigger artists are pushing their European tours over to 2022. Mm-hmm. Um, I think considering it's just cheaper to kind of do the whole continent at once. And if only London's open, well, it doesn't really make much, much difference. There are a couple of festivals open, but I mean, as it stands right now, I don't really have like an itching desire to see anybody specifically. What about you? You know, I think it's more the experience rather than the actual individual artists, right? I think well, I, I'm so kind of like desperate or maybe desperate's too harsh a word, but I'm, I really want to engage in live music again. Right. So even if it's somebody that I wouldn't normally pay to go and see, if the opportunities come up and the concert venues are, I guess, kind of sensible in terms of like how many people and all of that, yeah. I can totally see myself and our family trying to, to get something in. in yeah. terms of live event. I mean, it's interesting. My daughter went to see her first concert when she was nine and my son is, is starting to get towards that age and you know, kind of like, oh, would like to take him to see something. So yeah, we're, we're definitely thinking about it. What was her first concert? Her first concert was uh, Shawn Mendes. Oh, really? Yeah, and Alicia Caro. Oh, I remember that. What was your first concert? I've never asked. My very first concert was... Ooh, what was my very first concert? I think it was... Actually, it was a pretty good one. I think it was U2. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, in Toronto. I mean, I was young, but I think um, my aunt took me to go and see uh, U2 back in the day at the Toronto Skydome. I think that was that was the first memory I've and then I mean it was a bunch of little concerts after that right like wow. small venues and stuff um, along that so I mean I'm, I'm keen to go and go and see another concert soon what was your first concert I mean uh, I stand to be corrected but the one that I can definitely remember was the offspring that I think yeah that was like 2003 I think but I definitely gone to one before then but can't quite remember um the details Anyway, I think the important topic of the moment, at least, which is something which we're going to discuss today is or are NFTs Indeed. and place in the music industry. Yeah. So do you want to maybe kind of do uh, a light touch approach to what actually an, an NFT is? Maybe do your best uh, Pete Davidson impression from <laughs> Saturday Night Live. And, and if that reference doesn't mean anything to anybody, just Google Pete Davidson NFTs Saturday Night Live and You'll see a great sketch with Janet Yellen 
or, or uh, one of the, the actresses pretending to be Janet Yellen uh, and Pete Davidson and others kind of doing raps about NFT, doing hip hop verses about NFT. So let's let's hear your version of what exactly is an NFT. Well, I don't think I can top that and I can't rap. But anyway, what is an NFT? An NFT is a non-fungible token. What is a non-fungible token? It means it's unique. It means it's one of a kind, right? It sits on a digital ledger called the blockchain and each NFT can represent a, a digital item. That digital item could be uh, a digital file such as art. I mean, most of you are probably familiar with the Beeple auction that went for $69 million. It could be audio in the case of music, that's what we're discussing today. It could be video, it could be a hybrid of both. Uh, a collectible digital item such as an NBA Top Shots, which i.e. a digital Pokemon card or digital basketball card, or an in-game item, uh, for, for, for video games. Uh, it sits on the Ethereum blockchain. Ethereum is a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin um, and it supports all these NFTs. The difference or something which I guess we won't go into is that there are other cryptocurrencies which will be supporting NFTs too. Um, the, 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 the sexy thing about NFTs, which uh, some might not be familiar with, is that it actually that they have a feature we can which you can enable and it will ensure that you can pay a percentage of royalties in inverted commas every time that NFT is sold or changes hands. And this has massive implications on the music industry, an industry which, whilst it's had 15 years of decline, three years of consecutive growth in the streaming era, still, as I'm sure most of you would know, because you've listened to us talk about this almost every episode, you know, isn't necessarily paying the money for most artists. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like when you think about the Beeple example that you gave where, where Beeple for those who don't know, kind of did a project where for 5,000 days consecutively, he was creating digital art and he amalgamated that into one piece of art that was uh, auctioned off at Christie's for 69 million. And the interesting thing on that is, A, it was kind of sold on Ether, right? That it was the purchase was made with cryptocurrency. So it was the first time that Christie's had basically accepted cryptocurrency as a form of payment. And then the second piece that's quite interesting is that they then fractionalized it as well, right? So yep. they've turned that kind of purchase into a asset-backed currency on its own. And it's really interesting to see how that fractionalization is happening um, in the art industry and what that will mean, as you said, for, for the music industry. Because I think what hasn't gotten as much attention as the Beeple side is what has been happening in the music industry from an NFT perspective. So maybe we can talk a little bit about, I mean, Kings of Leon are the obvious ones. Yeah. Maybe you can tell kind of the audience a little bit about what Kings of Leon have done and what other artists have done from a music perspective. What's the what's the lay of the land right now from an NFT perspective in music? For sure. So I think the, the interesting thing is, is if you look at the spectrum of artists in terms of NFTs, you have uh, artists such as Deadmau5 uh, or those in the techno space like Richie Horton, uh, which have been kind of at the forefront of experimenting with the crypto space. So, you know, NFTs are a subsector of the space. Uh, you know, then you have, uh, you know, I would say Kings of Leon really commercialized the, the use of NFTs. However, uh, I wanted to kind of first really pull it towards uh, Mike Shinoda. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, I mean, obviously far on you are, um, you know, kind of a second front man to Linkin Park, um, who was the first major label artist to really launch a single uh, which is this pop single called Happy Endings featuring Ian Dior and Upsell via an NFT auction. So what he did was he created a 75 second clip of the song as well as an animation artwork 
um, and sold kind of in a limited edition, kind of 10 of 10 um, uh, kind of NFT uh, on Zora. And uh, each of them sold for around $6,500 based on an auction. So in some instances, one went for $200, one went for around $5,000. Uh, and, you know, the cool thing was that he donated those proceeds to, to an arts, to the Arts Center College of Design. Um, now, what was pretty interesting about this, though, is that you're basically getting a digitally autographed MP3, uh, right? Now, what he's done is he's created a, a different incentive in that you receive a physical print of that single artwork. So it's not just the MP3 itself. And in the terms of his sale, which is, I guess, what's going to difference, there's going to be a nuance with each MP3 sale, is that... He stated explicitly that you have no right to license, exploit, reproduce, or distribute the, the, the NFT in the same way. I mean, let's get real here. Like, remember on a CD, it used to print like the pirate and people would still copy it. Um, and, and funnily enough, you know, Linkin Park had been, I mean, I'm sure you didn't know this. I didn't. Linkin Park actually has like a VC arm. Yeah. And um, they've been experimenting with different ideas around blockchain. I guess this was the first use case for them to be able to do so. Um, so yeah, let me shut up for a second. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Like, I mean, we've seen ownership um, experiments before, right? Like, so, you know, the one that kind of comes to mind is the whole Wu-Tang example, where they had the album that the guy, the, the crazy dude who was in the- Oh, Martin Shkreli or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Where, where Shkreli kind of bought the, the one of one type thing, right? And, yeah. and this will be really interesting to see because, you know, kind of an MP3, the distribution, the, the sharing, whether it's through kind of torrents or Napster or whatever it was in the past, right? How do you kind of like provide some of that exclusivity and some of that value creation alongside, you know, one of the, the great things is the digital distribution is that more people hear it, more people, you know, kind of um, experience it. I mean, I remember, you know, my first experiences with uh, music were really listening to songs on the radio and pressing kind of record yeah. to kind of record them onto a tape cassette, right? And if you're thinking about that kind of form of, you know, ownership, you know, kind of distribution compared to, you know, in that very kind of, um, I'd say basic fundamental way of, of, what's the word I'm looking for? But basically simple kind of trans, trans, transformation of mm -hmm. that kind of audio. And now you're looking at kind of digital duplication and digital ownership, right, of that asset. It's really, really fascinating to see how the world is evolving. And, you know, it's one of these things where I think like a lot of um, a lot of parallels have been driven to the ICO boom of a few years ago, right? Where people were kind of selling off equity, right? Through kind of cryptocurrency. And I think that is a bit of a misnomer because I do think this is different because I do think this goes down to the micro unit of a specific individual create piece of creative, creative cre creativity. And I think that's very different to kind of what ICOs were doing formerly. But at the end of the day, we are still very, very early. And I think it's nice to see some experimentation happening. And some of it will probably stick, but some of it will likely just be learning, right? We're basically paying to experiment and to learn and see what's going to work and what's not um, when it comes to, to the NFT market, I think. Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. And I think you know, we've, we've, we've particularly started to see with platforms such as Rally, which is one of our portfolio companies, um, you know, the likes of, of 
handbags or Pokemon cards or even the likes of brands such as Supreme, uh, you know, a typical Veblen good where the demand increases, the price increases. That type of mindset, particularly for Gen Z and millennial audiences, right? The issue with that, and you've seen it actually in particular with the sneaker industry and StockX, is, you know, you buy those items, those physical items, but you damn sure, you, you better make sure you don't uh, uh, kind of use that sneaker or, or damage it in any way. You're compromising its value. A digital item, you can use it to the death and it's going to retain its value. Uh, and well, I just think, yeah. It'll retain its quality, right? Oh, and yeah. the, the value is going to be the, the interesting thing there, right? Because like, yeah. you know, you can create an animated GIF that of whatever, a cat juggling, right? <laughs> and and that kind of juggling cat GIF can actually extract value by being distributed more, right? So, you know, the fact that more people are sharing that, you know, kind of GIF of the cat juggling means that more people are aware of it. That means that innately it has more value to it, right? So then if somebody decides to use it from a commercial purpose within the smart contract, if you've got the capacity to monetize it, right, then the owner plus the creator, if the contract is written that way, are both kind of capturing value as the value is increasing through distribution. And I think that's a, it's a really hard thing for people to get their heads around, right, in terms of this is a digital thing. Why does this have value? In the same way that, you know, I can search on Google the Mona Lisa, and I think it gets a bit tired because I think everybody's using this analogy, but I think it's the right one, right? That I can search on Google for the Mona Lisa, but I know the creator, the, the, the Louvre, whoever the owner is, is the one who really has the thing that's gathering and gaining value of it, right? And the more people share that, the more people look at it, the more people visit it, the more it, it kind of has value. And I think there's something to that with digital art as well, that the more it gets distributed, the more that there's ownership, the more value creation is actually happening. And it's kind of different between, you know, kind of experiencing that digital good and owning that digital good. And I think that's the thing that's difficult for people to get their heads around when it comes to NFTs. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I think if you look at the music industry and we kind of touched on it earlier around streaming economics, I think what this does is it opens up channels, particularly for artists at a time when touring isn't happening and touring was responsible for majority of their revenue, their primary revenue driver. Um, uh, Streaming economics aren't particularly great for most. Um, This actually creates a potentially sustainable income stream and ability to optimize for fan engagement where in a post-COVID world where hopefully when we're back to live events, et cetera, that revenue, those revenue opportunities trickle down uh, and kind of help overall um, to, to kind of grow the industry. And uh, who knows, maybe that will have a great effect on, on you know, maybe the, the reemergence of the rock band. Because I guess, you know, from an economics perspective, when you're in a band, or even a group, it's very difficult to make money. Uh, you know, Kings of Leon, they, they essentially um, offered their album, uh, both it's available on DSPs uh, as well as um, through NFTs. Um, she said rhymes, um, but essentially uh, what they're doing is just providing moving artwork or access to limited edition vinyl or just some extra value add components to to buying the record, um, which is which I mean, it's it's cool. I mean, you've seen that and we've spoken about this before where certain artists you buy the album or the digital album and you get a free, I don't know, whatever it is. Um, so it's not particularly innovative in my view. But I mean, maybe it would be pretty cool in terms of getting access to unreleased content. That's something which is cool. 
Yeah, I mean, I think like, as you said, kind of rightly so, when we were kind of starting this conversation, we've been talking about kind of the royalties and the rewards for artists, I would say probably since we started this podcast, you know, however many years ago. Now. The reason why we started, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's really interesting that this these things are happening at the same time that like Patreon is is raising 155 million at like now a four billion valuation, right? And we're seeing that you know, kind of the creative economy is starting to to hopefully kind of address the problems that we've been talking about. But I don't really know if any of these are the exact kind of right models. And I wonder if what we'll see is a combination of these things, right? Where artists have, whether it's the DSPs, whether it's your kind of NFTs, whether it's through Patreon and subscriptions, whether it's through your kind of other kind of added value incentives, whether it's through, you know, a world where we're concert and touring again um, on that front as well. It'll be really interesting to see how the combination evolves, right? Like, I mean, I would love to see the NFT model mean that, you know, if I'm um, a music or a movie producer who's looking to build a soundtrack, right, am I able to kind of leverage NFTs in order to pay the artists and create value for those artists and those holders of value as well, right? It'll be really interesting to see how this evolves and how this moves not only from just an immediate value creation, value capture perspective, but into a monetization utility Perspective, right? Like when the utility kind of grows, that'll be really, really interesting that it's not just stores of value, it's actually exchanges of utility that we're seeing out of these digital art. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's, it's a great point. I think uh, we're, we're at the precipice of change. I think some, I mean, man, it's, it's a tech issue right now. Some are like, ah, you know, NFTs are going to change the world. I mean, what I, I've watch something this morning, Gary V's like, I promise you it's going to be like social media and in four years, everyone's going to have an NFT. There's going to be a reason for you. What would be the reason for you not to mint something? I mean, sure. Others are of a, are of a different viewpoint. Um, one thing I do think is interesting is the piracy space. Right. Mm. So from a content point of view, people are traditionally reluctant to sell individuals tracks online in fear of being caught. Yeah. Right. So now, I mean, with the evolution of crypto, you're able to do that anonymously. Right. But now with an NFT, essentially, you can assign direct ownership to somebody. Okay. Because uh, from what it seems like is, you know, if I buy something from you, you wouldn't want me to share it or vice versa or whatever. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is like it stops people from sharing, but at the same time generates additional income stream for pirates. So yeah. I wonder if there's going to be a relationship between increased empire, increase in pirated media content on the back of kind of increased revenue opportunities and an acceleration of privacy. Well, uh, I mean, I think that the thing with the pirated side, right, is that, you know, kind of when the streaming platforms came up and they basically made it econ the economic incentives to pirate went down considerably. Of course. Right? Because instead of, you know, kind of spending hundreds of dollars a month on CDs, you're spending $10, $20 a month on a subscription service and getting kind of unlimited access, right? Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, the value to those kind of artists, and the interesting thing is that not all streaming services pay out evenly, pay out equally, pay out fairly, pay out regularly, but with NFTs alongside innovations like open banking, innovations like rails for micropayments with what Stripe's doing and with innovations like NFTs, 
do we see a model where, you know, it becomes almost instantaneous, right? And it becomes pain-free so that instead of one transaction at 10, 20 pounds a month, instead what's happening is that I'm transacting at almost like bips, right? Of kind of capital to kind of like pay the artist for the song I'm listening to. And it comes out to a cap. Yeah. I wonder if we'll see these new kind of like innovative models to price and to pay for that are going to leverage things like NFTs and things like micropayments to kind of like reward the artist for that just-in-time paying when that just-in-time play happens, right? It's almost like just-in-time pay to just-in-time play, right? (laughs) Where here I am playing a song and that song is going to cost me 0.05 cents to play and that 0.03 of that goes directly to the artist in that instant. Yeah. And then there's there doesn't need to be reconciliation because right. it's happening instantaneously, whether it's through crypto in a wallet, whether it's through actual open banking in my account, right? I wonder how these transactions will will kind of move forward. That's a great point. Because to clarify for most, remember royalties are paid out depending on the type of royalty. It's like a six to nine month wait structure. Yeah. Top of the fact that you're being squeezed more and more by DSPs because they have the upper hand and are essentially owned by the labels. So it's basically just a shitstorm, uh, yes. in my language. Uh, and, and here's where the disclaimer comes. In no way do we endorse piracy, but it's definitely something to discuss because it is still a reality, despite the fact that, as you say, streaming has definitely democratized access to music content. Um, and it was funny, I saw something on Instagram the other day about like, like I know kids of today will never understand the pain that you would have when you would try and download an MP3 on LimeWire and it would wreck your computer. Um, but there is, there does still seem to be an, a, a kind of a, a piracy or black market for unreleased content. Um, Dude, that, that Instagram post, <laughs> I, I have to say, it's like every generation <laughs> has their own kind of issue, right? Like for my generation, like you guys aren't gonna know what it was like to kind of record something on a cassette tape just to have the the tape actually. I did, I did, I did. I, well, no, I do remember that. I did record on a cassette. Oh man, but, I was like, I ran to my father. I was like, you can record the radio on a cassette tape. <laughs> but, but the thing that I was gonna say is like, okay, so that evolves from like cassettes getting ruined to MP3s taking forever to download. Yeah. through to new music being difficult to find on Spotify, through to artists not necessarily getting paid instantaneously. What does that evolution look like in a year's time or two years' time or five years' time where things are instantaneously available, artists are in- instantaneously rewarded, right? And the pipes and the platforms and the data are all, you know, kind of totally open for people to engage with and see. I think that's going to be a really, really fascinating thing to watch evolve over the next few years. Completely. Does Spotify and do DSPs end up becoming a marketing platform and solely a marketing platform? The radio, the radio 2.0, right? Like if you think about it, like the radio versus the CD, it'll be like Spotify versus the NFT, right? It's like, hey, this, I feel strongly enough towards this artist that I feel like there's value creation going to happen. And I want to own this versus I feel strongly towards this artist. They're never going to make it kind of financially. Let me pay for them on Patreon. Yeah, And those kind of models will kind of evolve so that artists can kind of monetize their own kind of catalogs better, but also so that fans can actually engage with the content and engage with their, their idols in a way that makes sense. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it is pretty fascinating because I thought about it today. Like, I mean, I'm very sure you're familiar with the DMX situation. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, artists like DMX. 
So like comparing the two, right? DMX, Jay-Z, they came up together, you know, originally they were in a group together with Ja Rule as Murder Inc. Um, and you look at where Jay-Z is and you look where DMX is. And again, DMX got taken advantage of by the industry and yes, personal decisions, whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, you had the label machines that made and created these beasts. And, you know, in today's world, yes, with social media and all these platforms at play, it does increase your opportunity to get your music out there. But to build the momentum that these artists did is incredibly difficult. Um, I mean, DMX had, I think it's something like 10 children and 15 children, yeah. 15 children. And, you know, kind of while, you know, kind of, I was a big fan of his, it's such a shame. And, you know, kind of that, that life cut short. Right. And, you know, it's, it's also a shame that, you know, he's not going to necessarily be able to kind of see kind of the, some of the fruits as this, this kind of new world of monetization yeah. kind of grows. Right. Whereas like other artists like Jay-Z that you mentioned, but also Diddy and others have monetized their brand by branching out and doing other things. Right. It doesn't seem that DMX or, you know, others were as kind of flexible and as kind of open to, to doing new innovative things or launching new products or whatever else. So for those artists who don't want to launch a brand tequila or don't want to become, you know, kind of heads of a label, right. And do the business side, how do you make it a little bit fairer for them to monetize their catalogs? You know, you were speaking about Instagram and something you came across, you know, the thing that kind of surprised me over the last day is that there's a new album from Prince. That's kind of like archive material that he hadn't released. Yeah. That's coming out. And, you know, part of me was, super happy to see new content from Prince because I'm a big Prince fan. But at the same time, I'm also like, mm, you know, I'm not sure if he wanted this to kind of see the light of day, right? And some of that is, you know, up to the families and they might have debts and stuff to other, to, to, to kind of rectify. And it's a real shame that, you know, there's no way for artists to kind of say what they want in the future to happen to their music, how they want it distributed, how they want it owned. Um, and what happens to those catalogs, um, both archived and, and available as kind of artists get out of, you know, kind of the, the limelight or they, they pass on and, you know, kind of you have these ownership groups, which end up owning these archives yeah. or owning these um, originals. What are they able to do with those catalogs? And part of it, I think, comes down to, you know, what's fair, what's right and what's what you're able to do. But part of it is also like, what's the intention and what would the artists have actually wanted? I think these are things that we're still struggling with as a society to figure out how to get right, not just from an artist perspective, but just from a general life perspective. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's true. I mean, DMX even actually had this happen to him in 2013. It was like some really crappy album made its way onto Spotify and it wasn't meant to, but some publishing group bought the rights to songs and it was in rehab. And, and I mean, it was just, yeah, awkward. Um, but, so, so maybe we should, we should, I mean, I think the, the fundamental line is that I, we do, I think we both believe that some form of NFT is here to stay and that we will see some evolution and innovation continue, but it's, it's a watch this space and see how these kind of worlds collide from a financial services perspective, cryptocurrency perspective and creators and, and art. Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't echo that more. I think what will happen, what could happen, sorry, is if a label or a big major label artist kind of adopts NFTs in the same way that one label adopted Spotify, the rest will move and it could help to solidify and change the game in the industry. However, why would a label want to do that? It's going to be artists that are going to need to do that. And that will then depend on artist relationships with the multi 
kind of level uh, kind of marketing map of all the players that are involved in their careers. Uh, well, this, this ties in nicely to, to the topic of our last, you know, the deep dive that we did last time that um, people might want to kind of go digging in the crates and dig up, but that whole kind of like square Jay-Z yeah. kind of side of things, right? Where you've got, you know, music as well as the financial rails, as well as a company that's already kind of dabbled in, you know, having some of their balance sheet in cryptocurrency. So those things kind of line up nicely for, you know, for companies like that who are willing to take on risks to explore and innovate and do new things um, around that. So um, I think that's a good place to, to, to wrap up or leave this conversation. I agree. Um, I'll blow people's minds anymore. It would be what are you listening to, dude? What's, what's been, what's been gathering your attention? What, what have you been playing on repeat? Uh, man, music's been kind of quiet recently. New Music Friday has been letting me down. I have listened to the new Bieber album. I like that uh, a lot. And then he released that new, like, I think it was like Christian music, Christian inspired EP last week, which is also really good. Really like his music. Um, uh, that yeah, it was interesting because they did Justice and then he had a Justice, I think, Triple Chucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which was like an extension with a couple of new tracks as well. And, yeah. you know, it's interesting because uh, I think um, Khalid is on a track and yes. Pink Sweats wrote one of the tracks on the extended version. So for me, it's kind of like worlds colliding on that Bieber um, album as well. Yeah. There's an artist that I've been playing a little bit and I don't know how to say his name. So forgive me if there's any stands out there, um, but it's, I think it's Masego um, and he's a New York based Jamaican originally kind of saxophonist vocalist. And I cannot get enough of this dude. He is a lot of fun to listen to. Um, so anybody looking for, you know, kind of a jazzy soulful, but R and B and dance inspired, kind of new artists. I'm, I'm really feeling Masego uh, and enjoying the stuff that he's putting out. I'll take him out for sure. And, you know, in the Silk Sonic conversation, which is the Bruno Mars, Anderson Park, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was watching it. Uh, I think I might have sent it to you on WhatsApp. The um, uh, They did an interview where Bruno Mars said, like, he's basically, like, been all dried up creatively. Yeah. Uh, Anderson Park's kind of helped him bring him to the forefront. But I think it's really hard. People forget, like, to top what you're doing, uh you know it's, it's always pretty difficult and trends change i think even with this lockdown we would have expected more people to to produce or put out more content it's interesting for justin bieber considering his personal background to put out so much music but what's nice to see is that major label artists are prepared to do that these days and are starting to feel more comfortable with releasing as opposed to the likes of three stacks who just can't get comfortable with today's environment and just won't put a record out because they're scared um, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's twofold, right? There's the the whole kind of Silk Sonic, um, you know, kind of side of things, where, as you said, kind of Bruno Mars was really hitting like a creative hurdle, right? Mm -hmm. And I think like the combination and Anderson Pac kind of coming together with him really unlocked something. You know, it's almost that almost rivalry from the interviews that I've seen that's been really interesting to kind of watch. And I'm really kind of hoping that album lives up to the hype. Yeah. Um, around it. And, and I think it's, it's definitely hard, but, you know, there are artists who will adapt and artists who will, you know, kind of really take chances. Um, will I am and, and black eyed peas is another example to me where I feel like actually they're, they're doing some really interesting things and have kind of continued to experiment, you know, both with the Latin Latin sound, the dance sound, the remixes on that front. And you just get artists who are going to be open to that creative disruption and creative innovation. And then there's other artists who get stuck 
right, in the way they're doing things and just don't know how to unstuck them, unstick themselves. Um, so it's interesting to see Bruno Mars took that kind of route of finding Anderson Park and collaborating to unlock that creativity. And hopefully others can kind of find other ways to unlock it as well. Why not? That's the name of the game. It's what you got to do in these times as well. That's why we're recording on Zoom. Um, indeed. indeed. Well, I guess maybe we should leave it there for this week. Uh, I mean, it was a good conversation. Um, I guess we'll be good. Always is. Always yeah. is, Dario. It is. Um, thanks for making the time. And thanks to everybody who's been listening. Uh, this has been another middle school uh, episode where old school meets new school. Dario, where can where can the good users find you? You can find me. Where can you find me? You can find me on Twitter, um, on Dario underscore Devet with a W. Uh, or you can find us on our Instagram page. It's at middle school. Yes. Farhan, what about yourself? Yep. Good users can find, good listeners can find me on, on Twitter as well. I'm at Farhan Lalji. Um, and yeah, it's been been great, great to to re-record even though it's on zoom and hopefully we'll do many more of these over the next few weeks get that studio time in eventually probably may june anyway man go well i'll chat to you soon all right bye, bye. peace